2 Timothy chapter 3. Tim read those words from verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. When we say, we talk about the last days, Paul was not speaking of a time in the future somewhere when he wrote these words. Boy, wait until those last days come. He was talking about a time in which he lived. The last days begin approximately at the first coming of Christ, and they will end and continue until at his second coming. So Paul was living in the last days in the time he wrote. But for that matter, we're living in the last days. And in these days, it says difficult times will come. Now, spiritually speaking, we're living in difficult times. These are perilous times, some translations say. They're troublesome times. They are times when it says in 2 Timothy 3 that evil men will proceed from bad to worse. People are lovers of themselves, are they not? We see that every day. People are not lovers of God. People are lovers of pleasure. People are boastful, it says in this chapter. They're arrogant. They're disobedient to parents. Do I have to tell anybody that? We see that on every hand. Uh, they're brutal. We see that constantly in, in many ways. They're haters of good. They are reckless. This is the country we're living in right now, apt description of our country. This is how people are, and many times we see this. And yet they live under this facade, often a facade of a religion. It says they, have, they, they, they appear to be godly on the outside, but there's no inward change of heart. They're, you can tell that they're not really genuine believers. This passage goes on to say there are spiritually weak women weighed down with sins. It says there are men of depraved mind who have been rejected in regard to the faith. Um, and they do these things because they are evil people, and they're evil people because they're totally depraved. They have the sin nature, and that's why they're spiritually dead in their sins. But as we read this chapter and we see all the evil and the evil people mentioned, there stands, in, in contrast to all that, one man who is different from all the rest. And that person is Timothy. Look at the contrast in chapter 3 between Timothy and those evil people. Look at verse 10, after he's described all the evil and wickedness, Verse 10 says, now you, Timothy, he's addressing Timothy, Paul is, now you, Timothy, or the old New American Standard has it, but you, Timothy, which is clearer, so this could be translated either way, but it's a contrast, it's showing a strong contrast here, that's what's being emphasized in verse 10. But you, Timothy, you're different. You, you're not like all those people, you followed my teaching. And then you go to verse 13, and he says, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, Timothy, another contrast, you continue the things that you've learned. Timothy stands out in the crowd as a very different man. He's not like everybody else. He's not evil like they are. But why is Timothy different? Well, immediately, as you think about that, the answer that comes to your mind is because Timothy, the Lord saved Timothy. He was a saved man. He knew the Lord. And it, it's God's grace in his life that made him that way. That's true. The Lord made Timothy a different man. But the question I have is, how did Timothy learn about salvation? And this passage is very clear. The Lord, uh, Timothy, learned about salvation through the scriptures. You see, the scriptures were the priority in Timothy's life. They were the priority in his life. Now, what is it that makes a difference in a believer's life? Why is it, why is it that believers are not characterized as being self-loving people? Why is it that believers shun the love of money and pride, as mentioned earlier in the chapter? Why is a true believer one who is not living in disobedience? to his parents. He's not marked as one who lives in disobedience to his parents. Why is it that, that we're this way? Well, of course, the new creation in, we're a new creation in Christ. Christ has set us free from our bondage to sin, and because of that, we're different people. But this knowledge of salvation, this knowledge of sanctification comes from the scriptures. 
That's the bottom line. And without the message, of, without the scriptures, we have no message of saving grace. Without the scriptures, we have no teaching on personal, personal sanctification, no understanding of sanctification. Therefore, the scriptures must be the priority, priority in our lives. They must be the priority in our lives. If we want to know God, if we want to grow spiritually, if we want to mature in the Lord, then we must make the scriptures the priority in our lives. That's my message today. And, and you say, we're in the Grace Bible Church of Tampa. Why are we talking about this? Because even the Grace Bible Church of Tampa often does not make the scriptures a priority, priority in their lives. And it's, it's a sad thing. There's no other substitute for the scriptures. There is no other theological book that can take its place. No amount of sermons you listen to can take the place of the word of God. So the, the Apostle Paul places this heavy emphasis in this chapter on the scriptures as the instrument uh, that points the way to salvation, as the instrument that points the way to sanctification. Today, as our screen says, we're going to consider three reasons why the scriptures must be given top priority. Three reasons why the scriptures must be given top priority. First of all, the scriptures must be given priority because of their origin. Because of their origin. Now notice what the Bible is called here in this section in verse 15. It's called the sacred writings. You may say holy scriptures in your translation. In verse 16, it's referred to as scripture. Even the way Paul describes the Bible, what he, what he calls it, is just it, 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 it leads us to, to know that this book is of divine origin. By the very name, sacred writings are sacred. Now, the Greek-speaking Jews of that day, when they used that term, sacred writings, they were talking about the Old Testament. That was the Bible of their day. And so, primarily, this verse, all scripture, is referring back to the Old Testament. Now, the New Testament was being written in the time of Paul, but it was not yet finished. The Old Testament was the Bible of the apostles. It was the Bible of, the, uh, of the, uh, Jesus and of the early church. Now you say, well, does that, so that mean the, the New Testament is not included in the scriptures? No, of course it is in, included in the scriptures. But you have to understand, this is called the progress of revelation. Revelation of God happened over the centuries. You had the five books of Moses written. And then in time, you had other books written. When the five books of Moses were written, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Jonah wasn't written at the same time. That was written much later on. So the, the word of God progressed over the centuries. And then you have, ultimately, the book of Revelation being written uh, at the end of the first century. And so over these centuries, literally, the scriptures are being written. And the words of, when it says the words all scripture, it points back to the Old Testament, but you have to understand in God's timing, that would eventually include all the New Testament as well. So 2 Peter 3.2 says this, uh, the Apostle Peter says, you should remember the words spoken before by the holy prophets. Now, that's the Old Testament writers. Remember those words. Those words are inspired of God. And then he says, and you should also remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. That's the New Testament writers. So Peter puts the New Testament on par with the Old Testament scriptures. He says, this is all the word of God. And then if you would look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 2 Peter 3, verse 15. The Apostle Peter, look what he says about the Apostle Paul. Very interesting, 2 Peter 3, 15. He says, Peter does, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, so also, or as also, in all his letters, Speaking of them, of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Anybody have any problems understanding the Apostle Paul and every 
verse that he wrote? That's true. Some things are hard to understand that Paul wrote, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also what? The rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And so Paul, Peter says Paul's writings are scripture. They're scripture. So the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have the sacred writings, the holy scripture, the word of God. Although, remember, in, in Paul's time, their Bible was the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> the, notice the word sacred. The scriptures are called that because this is indeed the very word of God. It belongs to God, and because it does, it has this holy character about it. There's something different about the scriptures when you come to read them, something totally different. It's not like any other book, and they should be treated with the utmost reverence. Do you treat your scriptures with the utmost reverence, or is it just something that you lay around somewhere? It's the sacred word of God. Out of all the literature in the world, there is nothing like it anywhere, nothing like it. It's unique. No other book like it. You know why it's unique? For many reasons, but it describes to us, it, it shows us in all our ugliness. As Wes said in his prayer, you're good and we're not. It shows us in all our ugliness, all our sin, all our evil. It does not tell us we're good people. It does not tell us that we're to build self-esteem. It doesn't tell us we're to look inside ourselves and dig out this goodness that's in us. It doesn't do that at all. It, it tells us how ugly and we are and sinful we are. The scriptures tell us the plain truth about ourselves. Very, the plain truth. It's, our, it's the only holy book in existence because it comes from our holy God. People talk about holy books. There's only one holy book. That's the holy scriptures. It does not whitewash who we are. This holy scripture that we have tells us about how unholy we are. In no uncertain terms does it tell us that. It makes it clear to us that we're rotten to the core. We're nothing more than depraved sinners who hate God with all our hearts until and unless he comes and saves us from our sin. And it's only God who rescues us out of our miserable, sinful condition. He's the only one that can. These are the sacred writings, the holy scriptures of God. They have his stamp of approval on it. Now, what does it mean when it says all scripture is inspired of God? Now, normally when we hear the word inspired, we think of maybe a courageous story of an individual who's been through many difficulties in life, and he inspires us, we say. Or maybe we uh, hear a song that lifts our spirits, and we say, what an inspiring song that is, but that is not what the Bible is talking about. You're not going to get a good feeling. You may get great feelings from reading the scriptures. You may not get such great feelings. You may have your sin pointed out to you. You may have bad feelings after you read the scripture. But that's not what the Bible means here, and neither, by the way, are the writers themselves inspired. They're not, they're not inspired either. What is inspired is what they wrote. The scripture is inspired. The actual words of the scriptures God gave them in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, that is the inspired word of God. It says all scripture is inspired by God. Now, the word translated inspired actually means God breathed. It's describing the act of, of God breathing out. God breathed out the scriptures. The ESV has really got a good translation here. It says there, all scripture is breathed out by God, given by God. And that idea is confirmed elsewhere in the scriptures. For example, uh, Matthew 4.4. 4. Uh, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It comes from God. Isaiah 45.23, the Lord says, The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. The word of God came from God. If God had not breathed out his word through the medium of, of men, certain men chosen, by him to do this, then we would not have the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures are the work of God. I understand that. They're the work of God. I know in this day and age, when 
people question the, the word of God, the scriptures teach that this is indeed the work of God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Scripture didn't come from the will of man or by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that gave the word to men. Now, I've been emphasizing the fact that the Scripture comes from God. It does. However, we see that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We call that dual authorship. The Lord used men to write the Scriptures. Understand the word came from God, but God used men to pin down the Scriptures. Now, let me give you a definition of, of inspiration. Uh, what is not on the screen is my fault, by the way. <laughs> you know, I don't do the screen stuff, right? Uh, and all that stuff like that. I don't, it's just not my thing, I guess. <laughs> That's why it's such a pitiful situation up there. That's my fault. <laughs> definition of inspiration. Here it is. The Holy Spirit superintended the human authors of Scripture so that using their own individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded without error God's word to man and the words of the original documents. Let me say that again. Think about this. Inspiration. The Holy Spirit superintended the human authors of Scripture, superintended them, so that using their own individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded without error God's word to man and the words of the original documents. Now let me add this, quickly add this. I know what you're thinking. I believe that God also preserved his word through the centuries. I believe he preserved. That's a different subject. So when we look at the word of God, we can say that Paul wrote 2 Timothy. We can say, we could identify Paul's writing style, say, well, that's a different writing style than, say, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, or different from the simpler writing technique of John, who wrote the book of Revelation. We can see that everybody had their own unique writing style, and God used this. It wasn't not some kind of a mechanical dictation. It was using these men and their personalities. But we must not forget that the word of God came from God, and that's the point here. And by the way, since it came from God, it came without error, right? Does God, what is God? He's the God of truth. He's not in the business of spreading lies and, and falsehood. So the scriptures become our only, not our final, but our only infallible rule of faith and practice. We don't need to turn to church history to find out what the truth is. Now, church history can be helpful to us. Church history can also be harmful to us. But we go to the word of God for the truth. We don't have to turn to a church. We don't have to turn to a denomination. We don't have to turn to some self-proclaimed religious leader for the truth. We go to the scriptures and we find the truth there. We've got to understand that the scriptures alone possess divine authority. Imagine what you have in your hands here, this divine book. So when, the scriptures, when you're reading the scriptures, understand that God is speaking. Now, if people say all the time, uh, God spoke to me. I hear this constantly. God spoke to me. You read about it all the time. But if you didn't get it from the scriptures, you didn't get it from God. That's the bottom line. And understand that you, what you hold in your hands is the very word of God. It's a divine origin. And because of that, the scriptures must be our priority. Secondly, the scriptures must be given priority because of their usefulness. Their usefulness. Verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Scriptures are profitable. What a great word. Scriptures are not meant to be locked up in a museum. I went to, uh, had the privilege of visiting uh, the ancient book room at Yale University one time and saw the, uh, one of the early Gutenberg Bibles in a glass enclosure. 
Latin version. And I was, I thought, wow, this is so awesome to get to see this. But that's not, the scripture is not meant to lock up in a museum somewhere. Uh, it's not meant to be stuffed away in the back of your car, in the back window somewhere, to stay there all week. It's not meant to be on the shelf of your, uh, in, in a shelf in your house somewhere, just to sit there all week. I hope nobody here is doing that, by the way. And they bring it out on Sunday. The God-breathed book is meant to be used. We're meant to use this book. We're meant to read this book and study it. They are to be used because it's useful. That's what the word means. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it's profitable. The, the sense of that word means, uh, it means the scriptures are beneficial. They're helpful. They are useful, even advantageous to people. It's to your spiritual advantage to partake of the word of God. And I'll tell you, on the converse side of things, it's to your spiritual disadvantage to put you to, that when you fail to do that, when you fail to come to the Word of God, you're putting yourself in a spiritual disadvantage in so many ways. And so, read the Scriptures, study the Scriptures, take advantage of them. You know, it's, it's amazing that we would lay aside our only offensive weapon, according to Ephesians 6, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, lay it aside, uh, put it to the side, ignore it, neglect it, and this is the weapon that God uses in our life to help us in so many ways in our spiritual life. A weapon is meant to be used in order to fight with. We don't lay aside our weapon. We use it to fight. We're in a spiritual battle. And the, and the weapon that God has given us to fight primarily is the scriptures. That's what it says. It's meant to be used. Now, Wes read that text. I had him read Psalm 119, that text in the earlier. And, and the psalmist knew, as you, as you heard those words read being, being read, the psalmist knew that the scriptures were to be used. He said, listen to some of the words he said in that, in that text. He said, your law is my delight, for by your law I've been revived. You've revived me. What a great benefit. I have sought your precepts. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. What a great uh, respect and reverence and delight this man took in the word of God. Uh, it sounds like someone who made good use of the scriptures, right? And saw the benefit in the scriptures. Now, the way to reach maturity in the Christian life is through the scriptures. That's, you must go to the scriptures daily. If you're going to grow in, in Christ, you must do this. Otherwise, you'll remain a spiritual child. You'll have little discernment. You'll wonder what's going on. Every, you'll be caught, tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Any theological movement that comes down the pike, you're liable to follow. Any latest book that comes out, you're liable to swallow it, even if it's a falsehood. So we've got to get in the word of God. John 17, 17 says, Jesus said, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. It's for sanctification, to, to make us more like Christ, to set us apart to God for his purposes. The scriptures are not a mere academic pursuit. Sometimes we make it that, don't we? It becomes an academic pursuit to us. Yes, we need to learn the facts of the scripture, but the scriptures are to be a, a practical pursuit, very practical. If the only time you come in contact with the scriptures is on Sunday morning when you hear somebody preaching or teaching and you neglect it the rest of the week, how is that bringing you closer to the Lord? Now, how are the scriptures useful? Well, they're useful in four, four areas, the text says. Verse 16, first of all, they're useful for teaching. For teaching. That means it's profitable for teaching. Instruction could be another translation. Paul said to Timothy in verse 10, Timothy, you followed my teaching. Teaching the word of God, you listened to what I had to say. 
Verse 14, Paul says, Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have what? You have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Timothy was taught the word of God from a child, and it wasn't just a passive experience. He wasn't laying back and letting it go through one ear and out the other. He applied himself to the scriptures, so much so that he became convinced, it says, of their truthfulness. He had a conviction, this is truly the word of God, and I've got to do what it says. You see the weak women weighed down with sins in verse 6. It says in verse 7 that they were always learning, yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Always learning. There's people like that, always learning some new thing, but don't really know the truth. But the scriptures are the truth. And so people that get into the scriptures, they have a sure knowledge of the truth, like Timothy did. They have a conviction they develop. Wow, this is the truth of God. And not to mention the fact that Timothy was extremely blessed from early on to be taught the scriptures to be taught scriptures from childhood, it says in verse 15. Now, when it says the word childhood there, there's, there's kind of a range of meanings in, in that word. It can mean a child, an infant, or, or one, a baby still in the womb. It can refer to a, a newborn infant. Um, the Jews had a tradition that their parents would start teaching their children the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, at the age of five. Now, whatever age Timothy was when he started learning the scriptures he was very young and who taught him who taught Timothy the scriptures from the very early age when he started well it wasn't his father Acts 16 1 says about Timothy it says Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer but his father was a Greek and that's it that's all it says the implication at least the way I see this the implication is that his father may have not been a believer or else it would have recorded it, I'm pretty sure. It says about that that his mother was a believer. But then if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, the book we're in now, 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, uh, Paul says to Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Who taught Timothy the scriptures early on? His grandmother. His mother taught him the scriptures. The Lord used these two women, these two godly women in particular, to influence Timothy in his, in his knowledge of God's word. Now, Timothy's father, as I, as I think in my way of seeing this, in all probability was not a believer. But how many believing fathers do we have that are negligent to teach their children the word of God? You call yourself a believing father and yet oftentimes negligent in responsibility to teach the children, the children the word of God. That's our responsibility, men. God has put men, first of all, in the family as those who are to be spiritual leaders. He's holding us accountable for that. And fathers and mothers are both to, both to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But I'll tell you something else. You must also live the truth before them or they're not going to take you seriously. You can talk all day long about the scriptures and about God and about the Bible and about the church and about the preacher and all that. But if you don't live it in front of them, they're not going to believe all that. And as they get older, they're going to see right through you. It's our responsibility. We can't afford to neglect this. It's a priority. But Timothy's uh, had more than two teachers, his grandmother and his mother, which was great that he did. Timothy was taught by the greatest theologian outside of Christ himself, the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine having firsthand you talk about, we talk about discipleship in the church one-on-one, having first-hand discipleship with the Apostle Paul. Can, I, can you meet at my house for discipleship, Paul? Wow. And Timothy had this opportunity. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. 
Timothy says to, uh, Paul says to Timothy, now you followed my teaching. Uh, Paul says, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy learned not only from the verbal instruction of Paul, that would have been enough to me, he learned from the example of Paul. As he looked at his life, he realized, wow, this guy's for real. He saw him live it out. He saw him endure persecutions. He, taught, he saw him persevere through persecutions, and yet Paul came out of it like gold, and he, and he lived the life. And so the lives of Timothy's teachers were backed by the, me they backed the message they taught. They preached the message, they backed the message with their lives. And that's why Paul could say in verse 14, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, convinced of knowing from whom you learned them. He said, you know the character of the people that taught you the word of God, and you can, you can bank on their character because they live what they taught. And so you have the lives of Timothy's grandmother, his mother, and the apostle Paul endorsing the message that, that God and his word wrote down. By the way, let me say, get on this hobby horse again, you can't fool your children. You can't do it. They know if you're genuine or not. You know, this is very important. Uh, you better not be playing the Pharisee in your home, preaching the word to them and not living it. That's not going to, that's not going to get you anywhere. Not being real with them. You have to be real with them. They see through that stuff. And there's something you need to understand, parents. Your greatest discipleship Live, your opportunity to disciple lives right under your roof with you, your children, right in front of you. We neglect them, don't we? We don't see that. We think we've got to go to all nations and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Yes, that's true. But your children are your greatest mission field and your first mission field. Don't neglect them to the exclusion of every, to, as you go out and minister to everybody else, don't neglect them. Make sure you put them first. That's your responsibility. Now you say, what do I do? How do I, how do I teach my children the word of God? How do I go about this? Well, here's some ideas. You pray for their salvation daily. You live in sincerity before them. You love them. This is all a big package, by the way. It's not just you spouting out the word of God. You love them. You encourage them. You have fun with them. You go to the ball game with them. You go to their ball game and watch them. You watch them in their play. You support them and encourage them. You have all these things, you're real with them, and you teach them with, with your words and with your life the God-breathed scriptures. It's all a big package, you see. That's your responsibility. Don't leave it for someone else to take up the slack, by the way. And then we come along later on in life, and somebody says, yeah, I'd, you know, I didn't really have a father who took care of me and taught me anything, and I've seen that many times. Don't leave it for somebody else. Now look where the scriptures will take you in verse 15. It says there that the sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the greatest course in this curriculum of the scriptures. It's a required course. It's not optional. We must teach our children the gospel, and we must teach the world without Christ the gospel. You've got to do that. And the only place you get this information is in the scriptures. It's the only place you'll get it. All through the Bible, you see it. All through the Bible, you see that man is a sinner. You see the Lord is a savior. You see it again and again. You see it from the early, the early books of the Bible, this need to sacrifice the lamb uh, for, for sin. And then that points to the lamb Christ, of whom John the Baptist said, he's sent, behold, the sinless lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world, he said. And then we, we, we look through the Old Testament. We see those great passages of, of Scripture that 
talk about Christ's death and resurrection. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 says, Christ was pierced through for our transgressions. Listen to these verses. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Why did he do all that? Why did Christ go through what he went through on the cross? That was the only way he could save his people from their sins. That's why. Salvation is in Christ. We go to the Gospels and we watch Christ as he's nailed to the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And then he dies and he's buried and then Matthew tells us he's not here in the tomb for he's risen just as he said he would. Then in Acts we hear the preaching of, of, of the apostles and their message is this. There's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then we move on to the epistles of Paul, and we read the famous words in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we realize that salvation is only to be found in Christ and nowhere else. We arrive at the book, finally, of Revelation, and, and what do we find there? We find again Jesus the Christ, whom it is said that he's the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the one who loved us and released us from our sins by his blood. And that's why Paul said we preach Christ and him crucified. That's the message of the gospel. It's Christ. We preach him. It's the scriptures that give you the wisdom to understand this truth. It's the scriptures that teach us that salvation is through faith in Christ like this verse says. Timothy's mother, she turned from her sin and she turned to Christ. Timothy's father doesn't look like he did it. He may never have. Let me ask you a question. Where do you stand? Where do you stand in relation to Christ today? Do you know the salvation? Think about this. Do you know the salvation that we're constantly speaking of? You say, I come to church all the time. Yes, but are you a believer? Truly, have you been saved? Do you know the Savior Christ? Is he your Savior? By the way, you know how you can tell if you know him or not? It's in this passage. The people whom Christ saves from sin, they love the scriptures. They studied the scriptures. They continue in the scriptures. They're convinced of the truth of the scriptures. They obey what the scripture says. If you're not doing that, then you have reason to question your salvation. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my words, then are you my disciples indeed. A true disciple will follow and stay with the word of God. And if you're living contrary to that, then you have to question, am I truly a believer? 2 Timothy 3.15 says salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. By the way, if you have any questions about that, and you want to talk to us about any one of us about the matter of salvation, we'll be glad to meet with you after the service to talk to you about that. So the scriptures are useful for teaching. The second reason they're useful is for reproof. 2 Timothy 3.16 goes on to say reproof. Now that means to rebuke or to convict. The scriptures convict us. They rebuke us of what? They rebuke us of sin in our lives. They rebuke us when we are led astray doctrinally. We are caught up in a doctrinal error. How do we know the difference between right and wrong? How do we know when an activity we engage in is sinful? How do we know when the often abused so-called Christian liberty practice is, is gone too far? We know these things as we med meditate upon the truth and we understand the wisdom of God. And we see more and more what, what God wants out of our lives. And the more we think about the scriptures, the more we're able to understand better how we conduct our lives in the fear of God. You know, the, the scriptures rebuke our sin. 
We come to the scriptures and, we, and we're, we're just convicted by what we read and we say, oh, Lord, I failed you in so many ways because you're being rebuked by, your, by the scriptures. Ezra, the man of God in the Old Testament, uh, he had, when he had heard about, he came back to the land and he heard about Jews intermarrying with pagan peoples that didn't know God. That was against the scriptures, very plainly taught in the scriptures. Israel could not intermarry with pagan people. Ezra heard about this, and you know what his reaction was in Ezra 9.3? Ezra says, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled out some of my hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Has your sin ever caused you to pull some of the hair out of your head? That's what he did. How about your beard? That's what he did. Now, why this shocking reaction? Because Ezra knew the scripture taught Israel shouldn't engage in this practice, and he was greatly disturbed by it. That's what our, of the proper reaction is to the rebuking ministry of the scriptures. How do, you, how do you react when the word of God exposes your sin, exposes doctrinal error, wrong beliefs in your life? Do you tremble at his word as the next verse says Ezra did? And the people with him, they trembled at his word. Do you do that? Or do you, are you like the man in James 1 who looked in the mirror of God's word and he just went away unaffected by it, didn't even make a change at all? The scriptures are useful for reproving people, for reproving us of our sin. And then thirdly, a third area where the scriptures are useful or profitable, they're useful for correction. Now that word was used in ancient Greek literature to describe something that had fallen down and was put back in place. Maybe a vase had fallen down. The ground was put back up in place, in its proper place. So correction is restoration, restoring something back to where it was formerly. And the scriptures are able to help us, help people to serve the Lord again once they've fallen into sin. They put us back on the road to serving the Lord. The scriptures are able to correct us and restore us and set us aright again. Now, if, we just, you know, if, if you rebuke somebody for their sin and you just leave it there, your job's not even finished. Our job is to restore people. We, we restore fallen believers. That's what Galatians 6.1 says. You who are spiritual, restore the fallen brother. That's what we're supposed to do. When Peter denied Christ three times, the Lord had said, well, Peter, I guess it's all over for you. I knew it. There's no hope for you. You're just a failure, a miserable failure. He didn't say that. In John 21, he questioned Peter three times concerning his love for the Lord. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said it three times. That is to be very convicting to Peter. To hear those words, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? And finally, in, in, in John 21, 17, Peter, it says Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? Wow. He's grieved by this. Peter's being gently rebuked by the word of the Lord. And so it didn't stop there, though. The Lord restored him. Three times also, the Lord says to Peter, I want you to take care of my sheep. I want you to take care of my lambs. In other words, lambs, in other words, I'm putting you back into service, Peter. Yeah, you blew it. You denied me three times, but I restored you, and I want you to serve me again. And you, you read the book of Acts, and you see Peter doing the work of God. In that same chapter, John 21, he says later to Peter, follow me. Don't worry about anybody else. Follow me. And Peter follows Christ. Now, that's correction. That's restoration. That's why the scriptures are useful, to restore us back Restore wayward believers back to the place they were. And then the fourth area of, of uh, usefulness in the scriptures is for training in righteousness, it says. You see that, that phrase in verse 16. And when it says training, that comes from a word that has to do with the training of children. 
the education of children. It means to disciple a child so that he behaves properly, to educate a child so he can grow in his knowledge and learning, and so he can grow into maturity. And this is what the scriptures do for us. They enable us. They're the primary means that the Lord uses to bring us to spiritual maturity. You're going to remain a babe forever unless you get in the word of God. This could be, this is an education in righteousness, basically, the scriptures are. We talk about education. People are educated in every field under the sun. And if you want an education in righteousness, you've got to go to the scriptures to get that. That'll, that's God's education right there. So the scriptures are useful for teaching, for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness. And I'll tell you what, you'll neglect the scriptures to your own peril. You'll study them to your own profit. And thirdly and finally, the scriptures must be given priority because of their ultimate purpose, verse 17. They have an ultimate purpose. It says in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That is a purpose clause. This is the purpose for everything we've said so far. Why? Do we emphasize the inspiration of the scriptures here? Why do we stress the need to read and study the Bible? Why does this church insist on going verse, through, verse by verse through books of the Bible? Why do we have a high view of the scriptures? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's why, that's the reason, that's the purpose. Now, who's, this, who's the man of God? It says the man of God may be adequate. Well, it's only used twice in the New Testament. Used to the same guy both times, Timothy. It's used in 1 Timothy 6.11. Paul says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and so on. He calls him a man of God there. And then here, again, he calls him a man of God. Now, it could point to Timothy as a spiritual leader, and that's very possible and probable. But I think the term goes beyond that, because obviously the scriptures are not only profitable for Timothy alone. They're profitable for all believers. I think that he's talking about all believers. All, all believers are men and women of God, ultimately. They belong to God. Their lives are marked by a relationship to God. And I think Timothy is representative of all men and women of God. And that title's not to be taken lightly. Don't take, take that lightly. Men and women of God believe in the Scriptures, and they practice the Scriptures. Now, what did the Scriptures do for the people of God? It says it makes them adequate. Now, a lot of times when you think of the word adequate, you might think, well, that's just, you know, that's adequate. That's good enough. That'll get you by. It doesn't mean that here. It doesn't mean it's barely enough to get by, good enough to get by. It's something better than that. It means it's a strong word. It means it describes a person who is competent. It makes a person competent. It makes a person qualified. It makes one fully ready to do the work of God. It makes you capable and proficient in the things of God. And as such, you're able to meet all the demands placed upon you by the Lord in his service. That's what the scriptures are aiming for in your life. That's the ultimate purpose. Is the purpose is to make you spiritually competent to do the work of the ministry and whatever God has given you to do. Now, there are people who are doing the work of the ministry in a competent manner, and there are those who are doing the work of the ministry in an incompetent manner. And it's the difference is the scriptures. This education in righteousness, this education from the Word of God can make you competent in doing the work that the Lord has for you. And to be more specific, uh, Paul adds the phrase, you're equipped for every good work. We can only be equipped, fully fitted, fully equipped to do the work of God as our lives line up with the Scripture. The Scriptures make us competent to do the work of God. But how is it possible to do the work of God without a proper view of the Scriptures? 
you say, I don't believe in the, this thing going on now. I don't believe that uh, Adam and Eve are historical characters. Uh, I don't believe that uh, God created the world in six days. Um, I wonder about the inerrancy of Scripture, infallibility of Scripture and all these things. How are you going to do the work of God with that attitude? You're not fully convinced, are you, as Timothy was? How is it possible to do the work of God without a proper view of the Scriptures? How is it possible to do the work of God without knowing the Scriptures? Can't do it. Now, I'm not saying you can never teach Sunday school unless you're a Bible scholar with a Ph.D. But I'm just saying that we ought to be growing in our knowledge of the Scriptures. How is it possible to grow without immersing yourselves in the, in the Scriptures? You know, it seems like we're forever looking to the latest book that comes off the presses in the last two months for answers. Did you hear that so-and-so wrote a book on marriage? When? The last six months. Is that time-tested yet? I'm not saying you can't read it. Did you see the new book on how to rear children? When did it come off the presses? Last few months, last year. Um, you know, we read all these books that come off the presses recently. I'm not saying that we shouldn't read the books. I'm saying we should evaluate what we're reading. We read the latest book on theology that comes off the presses, but let me ask you a question. With all this reading that we're doing, are you grounding yourself in the truth of the scriptures of God? That's priority number one. That's before everything else. I'm not against books. I love books. But keep this in mind. There's only one book that God has given. Only one. That when it comes to salvation and personal sanctification and becoming equipped to serve the Lord as he would have us to, and that book is the Holy Scripture. That is the book we need to master, or rather should master us, the Word of God. Are the Scriptures your priority? Are they your priority today? Let's pray and let's ask the Lord to make it the priority in our lives that it needs to be. Lord, we are grateful to be here today, uh, to hear your Word preached or to have your Word preached by whoever it is. It doesn't matter. We just are glad to have the truth. Uh, we're thankful for it. We're thankful that this Word of God is inspired by you that you gave it to us, Lord, that uh, you meant, meant for it to do something in our lives, you mean for it to be useful in our lives. We pray that it would be. We pray we'd take advantage of it. We pray we'd get serious about it. We pray that we would um, immerse ourselves in it. We pray that we would be daily at its pursuit so that it might make us the people of God that we should be. And we pray we glorify you through that. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.